Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. These have been astonishing and exciting weeks as Black Lives Matters protests across the world and at home have prompted Britain to reappraise its past and take a long, hard look at a history that many white Britons probably prefer not to think about. What needs to happen next and could this moment lead to a permanent change for a better Britain? To talk this over, I couldn't be more pleased to be joined by someone I've campaigned for, who I admire, and who is possibly the best placed person in the country to be commenting on the protests happening at the moment. Marsha de Cordova is MP for Battersea, where she was first elected in 2017 and where she comfortably was returned in 2019. Under Keir Starmer, she has been rapidly promoted to the role of Shadow Secretary of State for Women and Equalities, having previously been Shadow Minister for Disabled People. Marsha, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so thrilled to be here and really excited for our conversation. Oh, no good. pressure. <laughs> Dare I ask how, how things are for you? I mean, how manic is life at the moment for you? Crazy, full on. And who'd have thought in this kind of lockdown moment that we're in, life has just got so much more busier. You know, you're on Zoom calls all day pretty much. And, you know, but it, it's good. And, you know, we're in a we're in a global pandemic, as, as you obviously know. And, you know, I think we've all got to really kind of reassess where things are at and how kind of the new normal is going to be outworked going forward because things are, things are changing. They're not going to be the same anymore. They really are. And before we get yeah. stuck into talking about the times that we find ourselves in, yeah. I'm really curious to know why you chose a career in politics. And I think it was Billie Jean King who famously said, yeah. you have to see it to be it. But when you got involved in politics, there just weren't many prominent young black women in politics to, for you to like look at them and go, I, I want to emulate that. I want to be that. So why did you do it? Um, look, so for me, I've always kind of, my whole life's kind of purpose has been wanting to make a difference. And I know many will say that sounds quite cliche, but my career, that's exactly what I've tried to do in, in everything that I've done. But I also recognise that if you really want to make a difference and have an impact, you've got to get on call and be part of that process. And I believe politics is one of those meaningful routes to bringing about change. And that's why um, I stood for council, uh, local council, back in 2014 and got elected and was you know, doing, doing politics at the local level. And then obviously, you know, when the opportunity came up in 2017 to stand as a candidate somewhere, I stood in, in the seat of Battersea and was um, successful in, in winning the seat back. Very successful. Yeah. That's, it's a real bellwether seat, Battersea, isn't it? It's the one that we usually look at to go, well, you know, which, which way is it going to go? Because that can yeah. give us an indication of how the rest of the country is going to fall. Yeah, exactly. And as it's, it's, you rightly point out, it is one of those, those kinds of seats. And so it was a real exciting um, campaign that we had back then. And I was thrilled to be um, elected and, and, and to serve as the MP. I celebrated my third anniversary last week. I Congratulations. Say Thank you. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I've, I've had to fight two elections in those three years. Oh, goodness. <laughs> goodness. Right. Well, um, let, let's get into the meat of everything. Yeah. Um, Right. Earlier this year, I think it was in the space of a day, the BBC confused you and Dawn Butler, and then the Evening Standard mixed you up with Stressum MP Bell Riberio Addy. Yeah. Um, do they get white politicians mixed up? I, I'm pretty certain they don't. And, you know, that whole episode for me was just tantamount to where we are as a society. In fact, 
after that, I, I did a debate in Parliament, an adjournment debate, just around diversity in the media, just to kind of start to shine a light on some of those structural inequalities that exist. Because what you've got to find, just by that one, one incident, three different outlets, Getty Images, BBC and the Evening Standard, had confused me, Marsha de Cordova, with two other black MPs. Okay, all they saw was a black woman with yeah. brains. And, you know, that isn't the first time, Naomi, that that's happened to me. I remember when we actually, you know, the general election campaign launch right here in Battersea. Um, I was obviously introducing leader at the time. And a particular news outlet was, was um, obviously doing their preamble and leading into it and referred to me as Dawn Butler. Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were in Brent, yeah. like they may be. So it, it really does happen. And I'm fairly certain, you know, that that doesn't happen to white men. And there are many in Parliament who... Some of them probably do look the same, but how <laughs> <laughs> male and style kind of thing. But, you know, I think the journalist Gary Young said it and he, you know, he said the message is clear in all of this. It really doesn't matter how prominent, how accomplished and how integrated, qualified non-white people become in this, in this um, country in comparison to others, including their peers, will always just be another black person. Uh, but I hope, and you know, I feel that, with everything that's taken place over the past couple of weeks, but also during this pandemic that, you know what, change has to come. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's time. It is time. Um, and, and it's not just the media, right? So earlier earlier today, we're recording this on Wednesday, I think Health Secretary Matt Hancock called oh. Marcus Rashford Daniel. Um, and I suppose, you know, his predecessor didn't even know if his own wife was Chinese or Japanese. So I don't, I don't know what, what we should expect, uh, but better, better is what we should yeah. expect. Now, the, the, the current BLM protests were triggered by the horrific murder of George Floyd. And of course, he is far from being the first black man to have been killed at the hands of the police. But these current protests have been far bigger and more international than before. You said yeah. change is coming. Why do you think this is happening now and not? You know, not 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 on the scale that that we've seen this time. That you know, last time. Why why now and not then? Right. So what I will say: Look, on the twenty fifth of May, Naomi, we all witnessed the killing, the brutal, monstrous killing of George Floyd, with a man with his you know by by, by a white police officer kneeling on his neck, and you know that was quite personal for me in the sense that you know that could have been a member of my family, it could have been my brother, that could have been my nephew. And for me, um, you know, I think it's caused so much pain and suffering because people have seen this time and time again. It's been the same story, whether it was Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, and countless others. Yeah. And also, you know, whilst this is all happening in America, when you think about African-Americans just making up 12% of the US population, they account for, you know, 26% of those that have been killed in police custody. And we have our own issues here. Mm. Because we know that black people have died disproportionately in police custody in this country. And so when I say change is coming, you know, we, what's collided, in my opinion, are the global racial pandemic and the global health pandemic with COVID. And you know what? A light has just been shone. It has just exposed all of those inequalities. That it's not now just a black issue. It's not just a white issue. It's a societal issue. We, each and every one of us, has a role and a responsibility to play to ensure that this moment is that catalyst for change. Whether we do that in our local or we do that in a national, we do that in a global sphere. We cannot return to any, we cannot return to how things no. were before. 
when I look at what happened to George Floyd, you know, I compare it to, uh, it was like a modern day lynching, right? But back in, you know, 50 years ago, it was, you know, a, a black man being lynched on, a, you know, hung from a tree with men wearing white, white sheets over their head. You know, today it's a white man in uniform in broad daylight being filmed for eight, eight minutes yeah. and 46 seconds, killing yeah. somebody. That was somebody's child, somebody's father. You know, it, 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 it's, you, no one could look at that and think the same again. And that's the part of me that feel, feels that there could be a change. But, but, but more importantly, when you've seen the Black Lives Matter movement in here, I mean, you know, I don't know about you. I mean, I, I did attend one of the protests myself because it was in Battersea outside at the US Embassy, which is in my constituency. Of course, yeah, it's in your city, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I went down on that Sunday afternoon and I was just amazed. There were a few thousand people there. Obviously, I was practicing social distancing and the like. Found a nice spot outside Waitrose, (laughs) (laughs) as you do. (laughs) Um, You know, really, it was amazing to see lots of my constituents, which was great, but old people, young people, families, children, black, white, everybody there, because you know what? they will know that they want their children or their relatives to grow up in a different world. And I know, you know, I've had so many of my, my white friends and I hate because they're just my friends, but I'm because of the context of this conversation. So many of my, my white friends contact me and just asking so many questions about, you know, racism and the impact and so forth. But some, some even just apologizing for not ever really fully taking it seriously. Whilst they don't consciously see bias, others do. Yeah, of course. And, and you, yeah. on that exact point, you have said that we need to collectively engage with our colonial history mm. and be honest about it. But why, yeah. I mean, your friends sound like, you know, brilliant, honourable exceptions to this, but why is it so hard to get white people to acknowledge that racism exists and to understand where it comes from and to accept yeah. that it needs to change? I think it's because I, I don't think this country truly has accepted its past, particularly when it comes to the transatlantic slave trade. I, mm. I genuinely don't think people fully understand that. And if you think about what happened in Germany with the Holocaust, and, you know, they pretty much, you know, they've got a museum and they've really owned their history and their past, you know, good, bad, warts and all. Yeah. And I just don't think in this country they've taken the opportunity to do that. And I think one of the solutions for that is to start teaching our children our history and our past. Because, you know, it's only by education, learning and understanding that, we, that we're really going to get that great deal of, under, uh, of um, knowledge of what we need to do in terms of owning our history. Now, I grew up in Bristol, okay? So I'm familiar with Colston Hall. Yeah, Colston you've walked past that statue many yeah, a time. You know, and, 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 you know, when you think that this individual was responsible for, you know, the forced you know, forced removal mm. of people that potentially could be my ancestors um, from, from Africa to come here with 20,000 of those people dying en route, okay? You yeah. know, that is a significant massacre, right? But yet no one's apologised in our history no. for the slave trade. You know, no, we're, we're, we're more likely to learn about German, Germany, yeah. you know, Germany's yeah. uh, atonement and, yeah. and horrors than we are about, about British. And, you know, yeah. I, 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 I agree with you. I think so much of this is linked to how we educate mm. children. Mm. And I remember my own lessons, history mm. lessons in British schools about slavery. And it was all about that British exceptionalism and almost like this noble view that because Britain ended slavery sooner than others, that they're somehow some kind of beacon of justice. And I think it was the Stephen Lawrence inquiry recommended better history teaching as long ago as 1999. 
I mean, you know, more than two decades ago. Why, why hasn't it happened yet? Why hasn't the curriculum changed? Why hasn't the curriculum changed? Well, we aren't in, well, we aren't in power at the moment, so it has to change, you know, and that's, that, that's something that, you know, I know that we are absolutely committed to doing. But, you know, it's the will to accept and own your history. Mm. You know, because you can make recommendations in, in a report. You know, the first report was it's tw- had its 20th anniversary last year where it was first identified that institutional racism existed in the police and so forth. Has much really changed since then? You know, um, and it goes back to, you know, maybe if people were being educated and having the right kind of learning and teaching and getting the understanding, maybe, just maybe, mm. things might change. But we've got to actually say, okay, we are going to now change our black, change the history curriculum and not call it black history. It's just no, British history. Yeah. It's just history, you know, and teach everything around slavery and, and all the other ills that, that this country has been involved, involved in. And I think that is until we come to terms, well, this country comes to terms with that, then we're going to be, and we can't just look at it in this whole kind of, you know, we abolish slavery and all because look, everyone profited from it, whether it was the churches or whoever, you know, parliamentarians and so forth. You know, I, I'm wanting to learn more. So, you know, I've asked the library to provide some, do some research for me on issues around um, the role of parliament and so forth in the slave trade, because it's really important for me to know as a parliamentarian, the history of it as well. Because, you know, apparently, and I'm, I'm checking it, but apparently we were, we were paying kind of compensation up until 2015 people that wow. lost over the slave trade I mean imagine <laughs> wow you could yeah I mean it's sad. yeah and I think one of the things that you know I'd be really interested in getting your view on and that I don't know that mm. we, we you know it, people have got enough of an answer to yet is this mm. this this issue that like there a lot of white people sort of seem to think that that oh when you talk about racism oh that's them that's those racists over there that have got skinheads and that you know say overtly racist things but there has been so much proof that racism is ingrained into society like you only need to do a really little experiment around cvs Mm -hmm. uh for example someone with a a non-anglo-saxon name with Mm. the exact same qualifications or better Mm -hmm. is much less likely to get the interview right so how do we challenge this 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 issue that we've got that, that that white people are like oh but I'm not I'm not a racist you know and not understanding unconscious bias is at the very least probably what they suffer from and that's the key isn't it it's that unconscious bias and it's recognizing that I mean institutional racism and those deep rooted inequalities just don't happen it exists in areas from education to healthcare we spent with COVID immigration employment you know unemployment among among um, BME communities is at is at nine percent. Right. Okay. If you're if you're a black a black worker who's got a degree, will earn twenty three percent less than their white counterpart. You know, if you're a black child, yeah. you are three times more likely to be excluded from school. So it's unconscious bias. It's happening everywhere. And and I think the 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 most you know the most um, sad example of this is around immigration and immigration and hostile yeah. environment policies. That's Saw discrimination against Black British citizens from that Windrush generation. You know, I'm a grandchild of that generation. My grandparents came to this country. They were invited. They were asked to come. Mm. They were told they could come to help rebuild this country. Who came here, worked all their lives, and so forth. You know, they passed away now, and they endured so much racism and so forth when they did come here. But you know, 
they saw this as their mother country, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet to know that so many of them have been treated so badly by policies, well, let's face it, at the time, you know, when the re- most recent legislation was in 2014 was brought in, many raised the issue that this was going to cause and the potential impact mm. that, that the hostile environment was going to cause to those Caribbeans. And it, and it, was, it was ignored. And what we witnessed was many of them losing their homes, mm. losing their jobs, and some ultimately paying the price with their life. And, you know, if, if that wasn't enough to really make us say, stop, something's not right here, yeah. then, you know, but it wasn't. It wasn't a turning point. We, ha- we had a review. Yeah. And if there's one thing I can say, Naomi, what we don't want are any another, more, no. is another review. Because, you know, we've had, I said to some colleagues, I am reviewed out and done with, with reviews. Action. We need action. Yeah. And that is why, you know, we call on the government. They need to take proper action around, I mean, I say a race equality strategy that really seeks to start addressing some of those deep-rooted systemic racial injustices that happen within the system. If you look at criminal justice, the criminal justice system disproportionately affects black people more than others. Do you understand? You know, if you're a black person, you are 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched. And even with the corona legislation, coronavirus legislation that was brought in, the emergency legislation that was brought in, in London alone, the Met Police data shows that fixed penalty notices disproportionately handed out to more black and Asian and minority ethnic groups. It was 52 to 48% respectively. It almost doesn't matter which statistic yeah. you look at. It, it, black people will be disproportionately negatively yeah. represented. I mean, it, it, it just yeah. seems to be uh, just blindingly obvious. And of course, the BLM mm. protests are happening against this backdrop of COVID-19. And yeah. we know disproportionately black people mm. are impacted and, mm-hmm. and other minority ethnic backgrounds, it must be said as well. We have the evidence, yeah, right? We, we know why. Mm. So what should the government be doing now ahead of a second wave to ensure that more black and minority ethnic people don't die next time around? So we know with COVID, pretty early on during the COVID kind of um, pandemic, we started to see trends that it was disproportionately affecting certain communities. And so the government were called on, I called on the government, many called on the government to review this. And they, 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 they did a review, but we saw the, the findings of that review. And so what's happened now, I mean, you know, they, they, they published something two weeks ago that had not one single recommendation, not a single bit of advice or guidance as to how so to So what was the point one. of it? Precisely, right? But what we, what we also found out was that there was a huge swathes of that report that was redacted, and, and that was published yesterday by PHE. Um, and that report contained testimonies and contributions from 4,000 people, okay, yeah. sharing their experiences. And what they found was that the social and economic inequalities, racism and discrimination were, were, were root causes of COVID. Mm. And, if you, and I, I'm just going to take, you know, occupational discrimination. When you, when you read some of the evidence that has been well reported, actually, whether it was from BEMA or, you know, ITV, did some really good um, analysis and, and, and research into this as well. You know, it was, it was, we, we found that BAME workers, particularly within health and social care, were being pushed to the front line more so than other groups. Mm. They weren't being given the adequate PPE as well. So there were those challenges. 
But more, you know, more importantly, you're asking what should the government be doing now? And what I say they should be doing is they need to be protecting our workers yeah. on the front line. And that means carrying out proper enhanced you know, occupational risk assessments yeah. and then putting in mitigations in place to ensure that whether they're working uh, on the front line, um, you know, in transport sector or within their, the NHS or social care sector, they are being protected yeah. because what we don't want is more lives lost. And what the government, in my opinion, and I raised this today and I've raised this previously, we don't want more lives being lost unnecessarily. And they could have, by, you know, two weeks ago, they could have published the said report with all those recommendations where work mm. could have already been underway to start putting in some mitigations to protect our workers on the front line. I mean, that's something, that's a small, you know, um, what I would believe, um, requirement really to yeah. begin to start risk assessing people on the front line. They could also, you know, think about how they record data. You know, at the moment, I know we hate talking about data, but in some cases it's really important. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, but you've got to disaggregate data. You know, you've got to know if somebody's Black, African or Caribbean or Bangladeshi because different communities are affected differently. Mm. And, you know, underlying health conditions affect certain communities more so than yeah. other communities. So it's, it's that, as, you know, yeah. let's look at how they gather data. There was a recommendation about that. But more importantly... Rather than them having another inequality review for, for Boris Johnson to say he wants to change the narrative, yeah, which is an insult within itself. Exactly, yeah. yeah. No one's going to let them off the hook. But more importantly, he wanted to move away from a sense of victimisation and discrimination. Yeah. You know, a sense. You say that to a person on the Black Lives Matter march who's experiencing racism every day. We don't need another inequality commission. No. What we need is the government to come forward with clear actions, a clear strategy on the steps they wish to take to ensure that they can start addressing some of those structural racial inequalities. And I don't see them at that no, place yet. And I think and, and, public pressure to do that, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, we do. And I think that, yeah. that public pressure is growing. But you, you've touched on this a couple of times, you know, while we've been talking about um, Parliament, about um, the institutionalised uh, mm. racism, the unconscious racism, yeah. and, and of course, the insensitivities of some of the things that our Prime Minister says. And of course, some of the yeah. stuff he said is, you know, it, it, historically, we won't go over, but we know how awful mm. it is. But earlier this week, um, the Prime Minister announced the merger of the Department for International Development with the Foreign office and he described mm. aid spending and i quote as a giant cash point in the sky and it you know I, I, for me that feels like it's uh, trying to frame the recipients as somehow greedy foreigners mm. was he just trying to appeal to his own backbenchers or do you think he sort of really believes this stuff who knows what the prime minister <laughs> thinks or believes frank frankly but I think when you can make such comments like that, I think you already get an understanding of where his thinking is at. He's written about, you know, um, colonization and African countries quite negatively in the past. And that's how he pretty much sees them uh, and stuff. And so, you know, the, that merger for me was just something, you know, you, you want to merge DFID and, and the FCO. We, we can't, I think we kind of get an understanding of what that means because, DFID was doing amazing, constructive work on a global stage, and that should never be discounted. And everybody, in fact, I think, you know, mainly cross-party, actually, there are some, obviously, there are a lot of um, 
Tories that aren't in favour of it, but but there were certainly were many that were. And so for him to then just want to just take that decision right now, Naomi, mm. yeah, during this global pandemic, yeah, where we've got know, other bigger fish to fry, probably Prime where we've got bigger fish to big, bigger fish to fry. You know, I thought I I I I foresee potentially, you know, many of these um, countries becoming pawns in in the bigger picture of, of trade and so forth. And so, I mean, it's too early for me to, to say too much on that, but but it, it is really worrying and it's quite sad and disappointing as well. And I think even form, the former prime minister commented on this as well. He did, actually. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cameron, yeah. And, yeah. and, and look, it would be remiss of me not to put a bit of balance into this in terms of the, the, the Conservatives and Labour. Racism isn't, of course, just something prevalent in society at large. You've touched on it. It, it can be prevalent uh, institutionally and within organisations, including, of course, political parties themselves. Labour may score better than other parties, but at times it has certainly tried to, I don't know, like appear tough on asylum seekers uh, in the new Labour years or tough on immigration under mm. Ed Miliband. Has Labour done enough to challenge nativism and xenophobia internally? I think, you know, everybody's got 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 challenges um, on issues around, you know, xenophobia. I think, you know, I think the Labour Party has always been the anti-racist party and we are the party of equality. But I think we kind of have always had that, those roots and that foundation. And potentially sometimes things get lost and you kind of lose your way on certain things. And so that's why I'm really pleased that I, I'm working on um, the equality and inclusion stuff within our party because it's really important that we ensure that all our diverse voices are at the heart of our response to some of the challenges. And around just the issues of... of, of um, how we look at immigration and migration and so forth, it always has to be a human rights approach. Yeah. You know, that has to be, that has to be our internationalist values have to be at the heart of everything that we do as a movement uh, and, and stuff. And so I, I kind of am quite excited about how we move forward in transforming and improving our approach to diversity and, you know, um, equality uh, going forward and inclusion across all our structures actually yeah and I think the great thing is Keir is so committed to that as well which is which is well yeah, I think he's demonstrated that with his appointments uh mm. and, you know you, you chief among them um oh, okay so finally fun. Marcia finally um who deserves a statue that hasn't got one like who should we put up to replace the hundreds and there are hundreds that are there because they got rich on the back of you know exploiting black people come on get, give me give oh, me, who oh, should you know, I have to Say one person that's going to really annoy others. So, do you know what I'm going to do? Can I go uber, super uber local? Yeah, go on. So, so, you know, so I obviously stand on the shoulders of some amazing people in Battersea, and so the very first Black Mayor of London, John Archer. Yeah, was was the Mayor of Battersea in Wandsworth. When so when when just, around what time? 1914. Wow. I know. Who would have known? And you know, I'll have to send you a bit of his speech, but he pretty much talks about you know. Him being elected right now, you know, at that time was about, you know, people's minds being opened and, you know, equality and so forth. Obviously, still had a long way to go. But then Battersea elected its first Asian MP ever, Shakraji Saklatvala, in the 1920s. And then I came along in 2017. Well, let's hope it isn't another hundred years before we actually manage to end racism 
uh, and and discrimination and that we will no longer have to be doing the marches that we're doing I think we mm. always will to an extent I think I think all sorts of discrimination is sort of always there under the surface and it's a constant yeah. battle I don't think we can ever take it for granted that we've somehow arrived and made it and, and everything's cured uh, but mm. I agree with you that I think this is an absolute turning point in our history and now is the yeah. time to turn uh, reviews into action and, and no more mm. uh, inquiries and reviews and papers let's just get on with it and do it Marsha Marsha thank you so much for joining us please do join us again soon would love to thanks for having me Naomi it's been a pleasure listeners you know what you need to do be an ally amplify black voices donate to BLM charities support black owned businesses and read as much as you can there's a bunker daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday with a full panel edition on Wednesdays. So please do subscribe and give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you have a moment. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.